millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the History Today podcast, which features... Norman Stone, Professor in the Department of International Relations at Bill Kent University, Ankara, talking to Catherine Hadley about his new book, Turkey, A Short History. So, Norman Stone, um, your book about Turkey, A Short History, is um, published this month. And my first question was, why this book? What prompted you to write it? Well, it's fair to say, not to ask me. And, and I've been living in Turkey for, for 16 years now. And it seems that, I mean, uh, that sort of the main point of your book is that you, you say that you're outlining what makes modern Turkey, and it's, I mean, a uh, um, sort of concise history of how modern Turkey has come to be. Um, and I wondered if you could just sort of summarize the main factors that made modern Turkey and the, you know, your, your main argument in the book? Well, I suppose you'd have to start off by saying simply it was a, it was a very good fighting machine uh, <laughs> without too much in the way of complications when, when, they, uh, you know, when they, uh, they come up. It's quite difficult talking about uh, early Turkish history because they're, um, while they're uh, very talented at biffing, um, they're less good at, at, uh, at, uh, at writing down their uh, their doings in in, uh, in a way that survives, and so you're dependent on what uh, what people from the outside say about them, and that's actually true until about until about you know the end of the 14th century. The the where they came from, we know from the Chinese sources, it's the Altai, and then they split up into various groups and subgroups and, and the, the mercenaries in Persia. I mean, I'm not an expert in all that, so I, I can only serve up what, the, to what, to what I got from the competent books. And they arrive in, uh, in Anatolia, uh, and um, the Ottoman Empire sets itself up, up from 1300. But there are really only four sources, you know, for the 14th century, until the late 14th century, which actually define who the Ottomans were and what sort of Islam they got. And there's, a, a, there's an Arab inscription on, the, on a mosque in Bursa, and people beat their heads about this. Does it mean that they're really kind of 
the really Byzantines have taken on a kind of Islamic cover in order to make the thing work? Or are they holy warriors or what? Now, the, the sources are, are very few. And the archaeologists are really... I don't mean this disrespectfully or anything, but the archaeologists are really, are really reduced to pouring over ancient rubbish dumps to see what what the first Ottomans were about. And, uh, and then you get, by about 1500, uh, 1400, uh, you have the, the synthesis of, of Byzantium and, and the Turks and possibly some kind of Persian element coming in later on. Uh, and it, uh, it was simply a synthesis which worked extremely well until... Well, I suppose middle of the 17th century, perhaps a bit later, and, uh, you've you've got the you've got the Roman law, if you like, and you've got the Turkish biffing, and and you have um, a Persian concept of a state, or a, I suppose you could call it Persian, uh, sanctified by by various old Muslim practices, and it would, that synthesis worked extremely well until I suppose. 1620, 1630. I, it, you don't mind if I go on. No. I, I, I sometimes wonder why it is in 1620. You can either you can either say, well, look, it's it's something which happened not just to Turkey, but also to uh, Islam in India or Indonesia. That at a certain point you can see the bottom dropping out of it. That when it's um, up to about 1630, it's full of life, uh, Hindus drinking wine at the Mughal court, for instance. Same sort of thing as went on in, as went on in the Ottoman Empire. Then about 1640, as if somebody up top says, cut, um, the, and, and Islam becomes, uh, you know, it's just endless boring civil wars and brothers executing each other until the thing spirals down. And a few English, or, or for that matter, really Scottish colonists come in and, uh, and, and take the place over. Uh, it's not as bad as that with the Ottoman Empire, but you can see the you can see the religion becoming sort of dead and repetitive. I mean, I'm sometimes inclined to compare it, and this time this is really a bit cheeky, but I'm inclined to compare it with what happened to Counter-Reformation Catholicism, because if you think what Venice, Spain, well, Spain, Italy were until about 1630, 1640, and then, bang, you're into a world of repetition and deadness and the, until you end up with one of the glorious sermons of all time, which is, Jesus Christ was not only the Son of God, he was also of aristocratic family on his mother's side. <laughs> I'd like to ask you another question about um, how your book fits into the existing historiography, well, two, two sort of related questions, but how your book fits into the existing historiography on Turkey, and how is it treating its own yeah. history? Well, in the last, that's a good one. Uh, in, in the last 20 years or so, there's been a, an extraordinary revival of interest in the Ottoman Empire. See, in the, in the early days of the, of the Republic, well, first, you know, first generation or two, they they regarded just the, the Ottoman Empire as so much junk, you know, <coughs> Arabs, Levantines, and so on, corrupt, and uh, doing down the, the as it were national character of the Turks, 
and it was very nationalist and militarist, and they, you know, they changed the language. And then, in the mysterious way things, these things happen, the interest comes back in the Ottoman Empire. So it's all over the television, and there are there are uh, hugely popular soap operas and quite good ones about Suleiman the Magnificent. And people demonstrate in the streets to say that uh, how dare you present uh, Suleiman, Suleiman the Magnificent as a, as a drinker and a chaser of women. Well, he was. And uh, luckily the head of the archives went out to defend the, <laughs> defend the soap opera. Um, and I, I'm always rather touched. I, I travel by bus from Ankara to Istanbul. It's the easiest way to do it. And take a taxi when I reach uh, Istanbul. There was one of the taxi drivers there who actually knew the ins and outs of Ottoman history remarkably well. And you find a, you know, a Kurdish waiter somewhere out uh, chatting to one time at the bar. Uh, it turns out to have learned Ottoman. It's absolutely extraordinary, this, the popular return of history. So why, why do you think this has happened? Um... I'm almost inclined to say, you know, to relapse into 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 uh, fatalism and say, direct wish of God, <laughs> because I, how do you explain these things? In a way, it's perfectly natural. It's an interesting subject, and uh, and you know, people have been given one view of history and a very simplified one in the in the Atatürk. Well, yes, I suppose in the twenties and thirties. Uh, will have understood from their grandparents that uh, history was a bit more complicated. And uh, and I think if you uproot um, people, as as the Atatürk Republic did, then they'd like to come back and say, well, what is it? It's a problem with with any enlightenment. It's it's only really... Enlightenments only last about two generations. Mm. And... Mm. Then people start saying, start becoming romantics. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.